3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, 3CR Breakfast listeners. I'm Claudia, and it's a pleasure to host our last Wednesday breakfast show for 2022. I hope those of you who celebrate Christmas had a wonderful day. Did you enjoy yourself? I hope that whatever way you spent Christmas Day, there was some merriment for you, whether you were having a quiet one, a noisy one. And if Sunday was not a festive day, I hope you took the chance to relax. Of course, we acknowledge that not everyone has a holiday at this time of the year. If you are working, I'd like to say a big thank you for whatever service you're providing, whether it be in health, retail, community, caring, or any other job. Your services are appreciated, you are valued, and thanks for doing what you do. I'd like to make a shout out to communities who are doing it tough at the moment. These are lean times, there have been floods, families have lost their homes, rents are high, many families have found themselves living in different circumstances than they were a year before. Christmas can be a really tricky time for managing emotions and stress. So if you're finding the whole joy thing a bit uncomfortable because you're going through some stuff at the moment, take some time. You're not alone. Wherever you're at, you're doing your best. Healing takes time. So go gentle with yourself and with others. We're going to go to our song now. This is Misha Bear, Playground of Youth. Driving down the avenue of time, same as everybody else here. The world is stored in my mind, that's why it's so unclear.
Healthy relationships are a major contributor to a content and fulfilling life. Being supported by friends, family and colleagues can make a world of difference during tough times. We caught up with Anastasia Simons from Are You OK? to find out more. Strong interpersonal relationships, so having people that you can rely on, people in your life that you can know you can turn to when times are tough, is a really important protective factor through all of life's challenges. Through those moments where we might feel a little bit overwhelmed, we might feel anxious, or we might indeed be be facing something that we do need some extra support for. So being able to have people that you can turn to, people that you've invested time, energy, and of course created those strong connections with is really important. And what research has shown us is that that sense of connection, that sense of belonging, which is so often driven by those interpersonal relationships, can be a protective factor against suicide. So Are You OK? focuses on ensuring that people do feel connected, that there are people in their life that they can turn to, and there are people that they can rely on through all of life's ups and downs. To get some practical advice on how to build stronger relationships and to access a range of information on how to support yourself and those around you through difficult times, why not head to areyouok.org.au. The Community Radio Suicide Prevention Project is produced with the support of the Australian Government Department of Health. You're listening to summer programming on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR digital, streaming on 3cr.org.au or via the Community Radio app. You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. The theme for today's program is books. I come from a family of book lovers. Mum was a drama and English teacher who always drilled the value of reading into my sister and I. My dad was a book collector and our next door neighbour was a librarian. So we literally grew up surrounded by books of all kinds. New, old, literary, non-fiction. I recently heard a new word which I thought I would share with our listeners. Being a bit of a Japanophile, uh, I get the Japan Times daily updates on my news feed. 
and uh, the other week they had a little vocab Japanese language section with the word for the pile of unread books that you might have stacked up next to your bed, on the bedside table, on the floor, in the lounge room, by the toilet, (laughs) on the bookshelf. The word is sundoku, which stems from the Japanese compound verb sundeoku, which means piling something up and putting it somewhere. And doku roughly translates to reading. So when you put the two together, you get sundoku. So reading this new word, learning this new word, inspired me to put together this segment today, connecting some of the stories that we've done this year on Wednesday Brecky. We've interviewed a number of authors and I thought it'd be nice to share some of those conversations with you again. First up, we're going to be uh, listening to Gunai Kurnai author Veronica Gori, whose memoir Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience, won the 2022 Victorian Premier's Literature Prize. That'll be followed by Jordan Keogh, whose book Disconnect, Why Do We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It? Perfect for anyone seeking a digital detox this summer. And then we move from digitalisation to the natural habitat with Saving the Reef by Professor Rowan Lloyd, a book about the politicisation and history of the Great Barrier Reef. And then to round out the show, we'll revisit the great conversation Ella had with Nadia Wheatley, co-author of Radicals, a collection of reflections on that incredibly transformative era of political change and activism, the 1960s. So grab yourself a cuppa, settle in, this is 3CR's Wednesday Breakfast's favourite book conversations from 2022. Just a little note, our next segment may contain material that is disturbing and um, particularly for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners who might be tuning in, uh, there might be material that is triggering and uh, raises feelings and recollections of trauma. So just a little note in case you would like to tune out. But if you would like to stay on the line, we have a very special guest. She is the winner of the Victorian Premier's Prize for Literature 2022, as well as the Prize for Indigenous Writing. She has written a memoir called Black and Blue, a memoir of racism and resilience. It's a story of the resilience of one woman who survives family violence and racism. She's a proud Gunai Kurnai woman, a former police officer and mother of three, Veronica Gori. Welcome to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast. Thank you for having me. Congratulations on your wonderful achievement and the acknowledgement of your incredible work. Before we get on to that, I just wanted to, having finished reading the book, I just wanted to ask you, how did you feel after you finished writing it? Was it a huge was it a huge relief to have got all of that experience out and sort of made sense of it in some type of form that made sense to you, I suppose? Um, it was it was a long process. Um, yes, that was over when I'd finished and it was ready for publication. 
very exhausted, I expect, as well. Yeah, emotionally as well. It took an emotional toll on me to write that um, and to reread it and edit as well. Um, it was quite difficult. But mm. we got there in the end, um, which was so amazing. And how uh, did you feel learning that you have been awarded this incredible prize? Have you come down to earth yet or does it still feel incredible? I'm still in disbelief. Um, I can't believe that I've won that. Um, to be nominated for two awards for such a prestigious award, the Victorian Premier uh, Literary Award, I was overwhelmed by that and to actually win one um, you know, against amazing writers such as Chelsea Watergo and Evelyn Marillan. Absolutely. You know, they're so amazing. Um, and to win and then win the overall prize, it's, I'm just over the moon. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a real uh, acknowledgement of both your writing and the story that you're telling. And um, I wanted to talk about that with you now. The book has quite an epic quality I felt um, both in the spectrum of the personal experiences you share and also the way it illuminates two of Australia's biggest social problems family violence and racism and we'll talk about those uh, shortly but for me the most compelling part was you uh, the truth teller the hero the survivor were you aware of the strength of your own character as you were writing the book and that it would become a real driver in telling your story? Um, I'm, like, my, my ancestors were the first storytellers anyway. Like, um, we've been telling stories for, you know, thousands of years. And, um, you know, and I've grown up listening to the old people yarn up and tell their stories. So um, I guess I've, you know, I've... You know, hopefully it was handed down to me. But, um, yeah, and I didn't know I had a book in me, but um, I'm glad I wrote about it because I think it's an important read. People need to know what um, what colonisation, the direct result of colonisation has had on my people and especially my family. And, um, you know, and I implore other people to speak up and tell their stories as well. Like in Victoria right now, we've got the Truth Telling Commission, the treaty, and um, right now it's vitally important that our stories are amplified and heard. And I think it's so more, it resonates in a different way when you hear a story told through the lens of a particular person's experience rather than, um, you know, as a general experience. Um, it, yeah, it's really powerful to, to connect with you in the book and, and then, you know, try to possibly imagine what those experiences would have um, would have been like and the ongoing trauma that comes from them it, it's yeah it's it's very successful in in that way I um, yeah I really recommend it to anybody that hasn't read it Come yeah in. I got I got your sorry I got your text last night saying that you just finished my book and you're blown away and that was just such a huge compliment um you know, it's my story resonates with a lot of people, not just my people, but um, a lot of people. And if I empower, um, especially women, to speak up about um, the abuse and you know that they've they've been subjected to in their lives, speak up about it. Don't don't be silent. Yeah, well, I'm. I feel like 
it's going to be a very um, powerful book in that way. And yeah, I look forward to um, to more stories that illuminate for the broader population what this trauma really is about, that it's very real and it's very now and intergenerational trauma does get talked about a lot but through the experiences and so many family members that are entwined in your story and it really is very visceral. Yeah, so not only is it my story, it's my family's, it's my children's story. Um, people need to remember that my children were right there with me when most of these occurred. So be kind to my children, you mum. Yeah, and family's a really big theme in the, in the story. Um, while the book shares a lot of trauma, it also shows the enduring power of your family and family relationships and the wonderful love that um, is a real anchor for you, particularly your father. So, yeah, I, I like the way it's, it's very balanced in the spectrum of human sort of experience and difficulties and strengths and I still, look, I still, my father lives with me now and it's my time to give back to him, so I care for him now in his um, latter years. And, um, you know, he's an amazing, he's still an amazing man and, you know, keeps me on my toes for sure. <laughs> but I wouldn't have it any other way. It's like um, oh, 51st States or if, um, if anyone's watched King of Queens, he's Arthur. <laughs> yeah. Arthur. I'm dealing with Arthur, everyone. <laughs> Hello to Arthur if you're listening this morning. <laughs> no, he's just walked past me. He gave me a little morning wave. Turning to the uh, more graphic part of the mm. the story, um, I just wanted to talk about police culture. You present a, a very scathing judgment of police culture in Australia based on your experiences of racism. <coughs> And you actually go so far as to say that joining the police force is one of your life's biggest regrets. I wondered, given where um, you're at in the process and the feelings that you have, whether you have any desire to use your experience to advocate for alternative forms of policing and justice and what you would like to see happen. I I like... The experiences I had with police were um, horrendous. Um, I found at the time I was policing, and it's still happening today, so as I was growing up, I witnessed a lot of police brutality towards my people, and um, whilst they were in handcuffs at the time as well. Um, and then later joining the police when I was 29, 30 years old, I, I still witnessed this, but I was, I was actually a police officer and, um, and I'm 50 years old now and it's still happening. Um, the culture of police will never change. Um, but also, we don't need police. Um, with Aboriginal people, um, when we have crisis or conflict, you know, in the home or whatnot, our, our first responders are our family anyway. So, and I reckon, I think if we could build a community where we, you know, where we're there for each other and, you know, and help each other out. We don't need police. And there are some programs such as the one in Burke where community-led 
justice reinvestment programs are divesting the um, the money that would be spent on um, criminal justice, traditional law enforcement, back into communities to um, to allow people, Aboriginal people, to decide and implement their own strategies um, to support communities and putting the money back into housing and the social needs. Uh, it would be great to see more of that developed in Australia. Yeah, I want to, I want to touch on incarceration as well. I don't think that's a form of um, punishment as well. And it's not like... it's The state calls it rehabilitation. No one's getting rehabilitated in there. We're getting... Especially with my people, they're getting killed. Um, and not just my people. I mean, in the last week, we've had two people die in custody. Um, sorry, three. Um, and also, we've had over 500 deaths in custody since the Royal Commission into mm. Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, you know, since the, the recommendations were handed down. And it's, I just find it outrageous. Like, so when the recommendations were handed down, the government was funding programs for community, within the communities, for, for the community, and then shortly after they defunded, so they've set us up to fail anyway. Mm. Um, so, and I just want to touch on the government. Um, if I, I re- my heart goes out to all the trans kids right now. Um, I, I look, I could cry right now, but um, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this with our poxy bloody government um, and his religious beliefs. Um, and for the families and especially the parents and the siblings of um, trans kids right now, um, we support you and we'll do whatever it takes. Thank you. Sorry about that. I just wanted to get in get in that because it's, it's so heartbreaking that it is. the government of the day has so much power to alter one's life and the effects of um, gluing and discriminating against a, tra- a trans child will have um, lifelong effects. And the object of making children feel secure and belong in a community um, is superseded by these religious um, doctrines that prevent them from doing that. Yeah, look, I hate religion. I hate churches. Um, you know, it was... The- it was religious people that put my people on missions, the missionaries, and tied my people to trees and flogged them with, you know, branches of the tree if they spoke their language. Um, you know, they're the most evil people, but, you know, each to their own. You know, and if... Yeah, I just... I don't, I, the government of today is a joke. Um, and come, come um, election time, I hope people remember this. In your acceptance speech when you were given the award, you commented on the irony that it was the state government giving you an award for this book when they were the ones who carried out the atrocities against your people and the ongoing traumas that the uh, the impact of colonisation has had. Yet you said, I forgive you. But I said, nah, gam, and I don't forgive you. Um... So I was only joking, um, and that was in reference to the Dixie Chicks because I was someone had a we had a conversation. I had a conversation with someone earlier about that, and um, yeah, so that was in reference to the Dixie Chicks. Um, but um, 
I, I don't forgive the government, um, nor do I forget. Um, the intergenerational trauma that my ancestors have been, um, been through, my, and especially my grandmother, um, has been handed down um, to my father, then to me and to my children. And what I'm trying to do is stop, you know, break the cycle of trauma so that my grandchildren aren't traumatised by this. Well, thank you for writing your book and getting it out there um, so that more people know that it's happening and being part of that process. Yeah, it's such an important book and I'm so, so happy for you that it was acknowledged in the way it's been. We would love to keep chatting to you, but unfortunately we're out of time. Thank you so much, Veronica Gori, for sharing your experiences with us and talking to us this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure. G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial.
that was the night with intentions we're going to head into our next segment now Wednesday breakfast presenter Grace spoke to Jordan Guo about his book Disconnect online conspiracies addiction and narcissism a lot of us have probably encountered an anti-vaxxer or self-obsessed narcissist who clutter our social feeds online conspiracy theorists or a child who has their face buried into their smartphones, probably encountered an anti-vaxxer or self-obsessed narcissist who clutter our social feeds, online conspiracy theorists or a child who has their face buried into their smartphones. And some of us might have may live with one. We know this happens a lot, and but have we tried to pull people or even ourselves back from the brink of digital abyss? Joining me this morning is Jordan Zhao, who is the former digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and head of social media for the Special Broadcasting Service. Discussing his newly released book, Disconnect, and we're going to be looking at, uh, and on it and to have a slight understanding of being pushed to extremes online. Uh, hi, Jordan. How are you? Hi, Grace. Good to be with you. Good to be with you today. Um, so your book actually just released yesterday, so very, very exciting. Could you give yeah. us a slight brief explanation of what Disconnect is about? Absolutely. So the book is called Disconnect, Why We Get Pushed to Extremes Online and How to Stop It. And so really, it's about some of the most urgent issues we're seeing as a result of the way the internet and social media is currently set up. And as you alluded to earlier, the way it's structured is around some personas that encapsulate those issues. So for example, people like online conspiracy theorists who fall down the rabbit holes of conspiracies, you know, freedom fighters, the people who protest lockdown mandates and vaccines, social media narcissists trolls, screen addicts, etc. And the idea is that we all know somebody like this now. And, you know, they're not crazy people from far away. You know, they're really one degree removed. You know, often they're, you know, people that we uh, might actually really care about. And sometimes it might actually affect us personally. So, you know, it really felt like there was an escalation of these sort of characters and these sort of issues. And so the book is really shining a light on what's actually happening because we're starting to see it all around us. Yes, definitely. And yeah, it definitely covers a lot on different people and what they have been, I would say, believing about online. And so what, what made you think of writing this book? Well, how, how did you start with it? Yeah, so I've been researching these issues for a while. But uh, the reason for the book is because it really felt like there was an escalation, uh, particularly over the last few years. So, you know, we know there are problems with disinformation and fake news. We know the way the Internet is currently set up is quite harmful. But what I started to see was an uptick of these characters over the last few years. And, and that idea that we all know something like this now really started to get validated. And so I interviewed you know, a lot of different people. And yeah, they they all said, you know, it's either affecting me directly or I definitely know somebody who's like this. So it felt like there was something bigger going on that we needed to discuss. And that what the book is about is really trying to unpack what's happening and that a lot of it has to do with the technology and the design of the current setup of the internet. Jordan, it's Judith here. Um, Hi. I, 
Hi. And and look, thanks for this book. I'm really looking forward to reading it because I think I can benefit from it myself. But but I'm curious, you mentioned your interviews. How did you locate your people to interview? Yeah, a lot of different ways. So, you know, obviously I I had to be careful. Um, So firstly, I, you know, the, the interviews are anonymized, so um, a lot of the case studies have their names changed. But what was actually surprising is that there's a lot of them around. So, you know, if you go onto certain forums or even if you go onto, like, Instagram and follow a specific hashtag, for example, you know, it, it's quite easy to find um, people who are, you know, very concerned with a particular... So, you know, to give you one specific example, you know, last year we saw a lot of protests against the lockdowns and mandates and often you know those people were actually very happy to share their experiences online through a hashtag or live stream their experience so they're actually quite easy to find and i I guess that was one of the surprising things about going through this process is like i was saying it kind of these characters are sort of all around us now they're not they're not far away at all it's happening kind of everywhere yes I see. And and then also after you have found these people and uh, talked to them about things uh, regarding their experiences. So we, we can tell that this book uh, is obviously based on um, personal case studies and like a lot of them cover different different topics. Like some of them came from maybe believing about the um, anti, uh, vaccination and maybe some is about something regarding any online conspiracy theories that are about maybe children being abused or something. And then it's obviously all really different personal uh, stories that happen. So how did you try to um, connect to understand the psychological aspect and, and your expertise as a tech person, especially because your job is as a digital strategist, so you might not really understand on the psych- psychological aspect? Yeah, definitely. So there's there's a lot of research or there's a growing body of research being developed that looks at how harmful the current setup of the internet is. So, you know, the structure of each chapter is, as you mentioned, you know, there are a few case studies because it's always really interesting listening to other people's stories. But then I do go into quite a bit of detail about, you know, the underpinning psychology behind it or what's the latest research on, for example, addiction or online radicalization. And I wanted to make sure to connect the two so that, you know, it Firstly, so that it's credible and that what we're seeing is actually a bigger phenomenon that's happening. And it's to do with how the current setup of the Internet is, is developed. And I should say that uh, each chapter also focuses a lot on solutions. So I wanted to make sure that I don't just present the problems and that there's actually, um, you know, a lot that we can do to do these things. So it, I'm not just, you know, doom and gloom. I wanted to make sure that people felt like, you know, if they do encounter these issues themselves, that there's something they can do about it. Yes, and obviously, yeah, definitely one of the main things that we want to bring up from this book is um, how do we stop it? How do we stop these people from being pushed to extremes online? Was it was it a very uh, was it very complicated to get into that expect um, get to that part of trying to find solutions? Yeah, I think there's a lot of work that we need to do for sure, and. Um, each chapter has two types of recommendations, so what we can do as individuals to try and address it. But really, 
I think a lot of the work has to be done at an institutional level. So what, what kind of regulation does government have put in place? You know, what kind of restrictions do we need to put in place in the tech platforms themselves? Because obviously they're the ones who are facilitating this. So I think a lot of it has to do with actually making sure or forcing the digital platforms like Facebook, like YouTube, to start to address this directly because it shouldn't have to fall on us as individuals to sort out this mess. A lot of it really should be done at a, at a group, at an institution uh, level. So each chapter has two types of recommendations to make, to make sure that people feel like there's something they can do about it. Mm, definitely. And then, and, so, sorry, <laughs> Judith, go ahead. We were just looking at each other. So I, I, I wanted to say it's so encouraging um, to, to, to know that there are some things people can do. Because there's so many stories that you feel a little bit helpless about afterwards. Yeah. And uh, it's good to know that there are some possible strategies. It's not all on us. But I guess it is on us to some extent to lobby our members of parliament and lawmakers. That's right. So I think we need to come at it from, from both angles. As you say, you know, it, for example, if you're going through this, you, do you have to wait until the next legislation is put in place? You know, that's probably going to take a long time. So you do, there are some things that individuals have to do themselves and there are some things that, you know, institutions have to do. But hopefully I provided both of those types of recommendations in the book. Mm, definitely. And then, yeah, now, now it just comes down to the main question uh, why, why do people get disconnected from reality, you know? And the whole thing about the book is about people being disconnected. Is there, is there a reason why that's the case? I think so. It's, it's obviously complex, but what we're starting to see is that the way social media in particular and the current digital platforms, so the biggest tech platforms, the way they prey on some of our um, innate vulnerabilities. So, you know, for example... Um, during the pandemic, obviously, people were, you know, very worried and concerned. But, you know, that fear was kind of twisted online and, you know, it, to the point where um, it became an issue. So particularly what a lot of we're seeing with conspiracies is, you know, you might start with one video that's kind of a little bit unconventional because you're curious. But the way social media platforms are set up is it keeps feeding you videos like that, and it keeps feeding you more and more extreme versions so that there's definitely um, a funneling process. And, you know, often we refer to these as rabbit holes because you sort of get stuck, you know, like, so you might be curious or worried about something, but if you keep spending um, time on those platforms, they keep shoving the same sort of conspiracy videos and it keeps escalating. And then, you know, next thing you know, very quickly, you know, you're full of these quite dangerous and harmful thoughts. So there's definitely something in the design of the platforms that's escalating that process, even though it might start outside of it. So I, I, I do place a lot of the focus on the technology platforms of today. Mm, I see. Yep. Yeah, I think it's it's still quite hard to understand and know and think why people um, get disconnected that way but obviously um, maybe it's because of personal experiences and again uh, we try to emphasize that this is all based on personal experience, uh, personal stories that all different at all differ and I think that's where the complication comes in trying to understand how do we try to solve uh, solve the solution I mean solve the situation for each person right yep. oh I'll, I'll say and yeah you're right in that everybody's experience is, is a little bit different but there are common patterns that I sort of saw throughout researching the book. And I think it, it, there is um, a clear reason in terms of that 
radicalisation happening and a lot of it is to do with the design of the current technology platforms. Mm, interesting. Well, about talking about current technology, it's going to probably be too much for our listeners this morning. Yeah, yeah. But that's okay because we also don't want to give too much away from the book. Uh, so, yeah, Jordan, just one final question because just for our listeners to know, could you share to our listeners why we should be reading this book? Yeah, I, I think um, it, it's very timely. And um, the, the central thesis and challenge of the book, if you like, is that you definitely know one of these people. Um, they're probably near you, and you know you may not want to admit that, but I think we all know one of these characters now. And so there's a, there's a bigger thing happening, and we ought to understand what's happening so that we can start to uh, address that. Um, and it's very readable. I think you know it's it's one of the few books that's really looking at these issues at the moment. Um, and for example, a lot of the people that I spoke to said, you know, there's not enough being done. So, uh, you know, I think it's um, hopefully a really great contribution to this subject matter. Definitely. And and this will be a good, I would say, a good start for people to have hopeful conversations on how to use the internet safely and for social good. Most definitely. So, um, yeah, thank you so much, Jordan, for having a chat with me today. That was That was really lovely to listen about your new book. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Jordan. Bye. And that was Jordan Jiao, the former digital strategist for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation and the head of social media for the Special Broadcasting Service, talking about his newly released book, which is titled Disconnect. The book is actually now available at all good bookstores and online. You can head to Monash University's publishing website and just look for publishing.monash.com edu forward slash product forward slash disconnect and that was grace speaking with jordan gyo about his book disconnect we're going to head to a song now here is christine manetta with catch me when we come back we'll be heading straight into our next segment with idwin on saving the reef you're listening to 3cr wednesday breakfast Ha! Uh-huh. 
The Great Barrier Reef has been in the news from mass bleaching events earlier this year, unprecedented in the La Nina season, to reports of record coral cover in the Great Barrier Reef in July. There's also been a lot of misinformation. This has been coupled with the ongoing politicisation of the reef, how we view it and how we value it. Management of the reef has transferred with the new government, and while Environmental Minister Plibersek has pledged to protect the reef, it remains unclear as to what the next steps are. For a slightly different perspective today, I invited Professor Rowan Lloyd on uh, from Townsville to talk about his work in researching the history and politicisation of the Great Barrier Reef and his new book on this issue. Good morning, Rowan. Good morning. (laughs) Rowan, in your work, you look at the different valuations of the Great Barrier Reef since colonial history um, and and why the specific environmental landmark is is important to Australia's sense of national identity. Could you explain sort of the the dominant attitudes that you've seen around the Great Barrier Reef and why it's continued to be such a point of fascination, I suppose, for colonial and current Australia? Yeah, yeah. thanks very much for having me on. I think that's a really important question and one that I really try to get to the bottom of actually in this book, uh, Saving the Reef, but also uh, my research more broadly. I think there's two really key things that I don't think will be a massive surprise to your listeners. Uh, but the first one is that it's really beautiful uh, and beauty is intriguing, uh, it's fascinating, it's inspiring, and those things really matter with the Great Barrier Reef. But the other thing is its size almost requires that it also be useful for something. And what I mean there is it has to have some sort of economic use. So through settler engagement with the reef, those two things, that idea of its beauty, but also uh, a, a, an aspiration to use it for some sort of economic purpose has been at the core of why we value this uh, great, big, beautiful reef. You've looked at the dominant narratives that have surrounded the reef. Uh, In 2016, you co-authored an essay looking at the Save the Reef campaign in the 1960s. Can you tell us a little bit about the dynamics that were at play in that campaign, the narratives and the actors that were present? Yeah, well, I should say that that paper was also written with two colleagues, uh, Maxine Newlands and uh, Theresa Petray. Um, and it was a great opportunity to talk about how history can inform our current sort of activism climate around the reef. For my part, I looked at the reefs, like the various actors that were engaging in the Save the Reef campaign in the historical period, so in the 1960s and 70s. And it was pretty clear there were scientists, there was conservationists, there was the government and also the media as well. What was particularly interesting to me is that, you know, you would imagine that 
scientists and conservationists would align themselves quite uh, nicely. Um, and that given our current climate, that perhaps the media, for example, might take, a, I don't know, maybe uh, uh, an antagonistic stance towards conservationists, given in the way that uh, some media outlets uh, behave today. But in that period of time, in the 1960s and 1970s, it was somewhat the opposite. Conservationists actually uh, were buoyed and given a lot of support by the, uh, the media of the day. And at times, one of their biggest battles was finding uh, allies within the sciences, at least um, at least vocal allies within the sciences. And that was really interesting to me and to my colleagues, uh, given the way that things have changed for today. Mm, and what do you see as, I suppose, the current tensions or, or narratives that we've got surrounding the Great Barrier Reef at the moment? Do you, do you think it's become more political or more politicised? Um, I guess... I guess one way you could talk about it is that the politics have become more intense. I'll probably say that they've become murkier, largely because climate change itself is such a complicated issue. It's not uh, in the 1960s and 70s. The issue was, you know, complicated to an extent, but it was pretty stark. Do we drill the reef for oil and minerals and mine it for minerals or not? Pretty clear uh, stance there. But today the politics of climate change mean that we've got to think about fossil fuel extraction, the way that we interact with our um, environment from an agricultural point of view. And in that sort of murky world, there's uh, lots of opportunity costs and winners and losers that make it a little bit more murky. Um, and so what you see today is it definitely divisions within all those organisations and between those organisations that don't, uh, that aren't as clear cut uh, as they were back then. So I would say it's murkier, but definitely the government um, who have, or governments, because of their access to um, more science, they have the capacity to, I guess, use that science in a ways that is far more political than they had in, in, in the past. I work in the media information space and understandings of the reef is definitely murky. There's a lot of information out there between the actual science and the counter-information campaigns it can be very hard for the public to understand what's actually going on. So I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the role of scientists uh, in giving and translating this information, especially seeing as there's been narratives in the country saying that scientists shouldn't be political or, or they shouldn't be outspoken in that way? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a tough one, It's a but it's an important question. Um, Look, I think that science has had a major role in the way that we think about the reef through time, and that obviously continues to today. In the past, reef scientists were, uh, like, their work was political. They talked about the reef as a place that needed to be valued, uh, and that it, and they spoke about it in terms of it being undervalued. So they would say things like, uh, the reef has, a, you know, enormous potential in all these areas of development, so economic development, and we need to do that and we need science to um, help us find the ways to do that. So they're basically saying uh, invest in science and we'll help you invest in the reef, so to speak. And that was an important way about, that was an important way in which people thought about the reef and it was an important method for early reef science to gain uh, the necessary infrastructure to, to be relevant within the uh, broader science academy. In terms of your misinformation, I think that one of the big things that have occurred is that some of those proponents who say that uh, their science has become too political, they themselves are engaged in a, um, in a political act. Um, 
And I think that's fine. I think scientists should be political, particularly on things like environmental science, where they have so much to offer the broader public. And as you say, understanding these really complex and you know perplexing ideas of marine biology. I think one of the things that has happened with uh, un- an unfortunate thing that has occurred is that the broader science academy, particularly in the marine sciences, have allowed others to politicise their work and to not, I guess, assert themselves in that venue when we really do need the scientists behind um, uh, this sort of understanding of how the climate and how we as humans impact the reef. We really need those scientists to explain those ideas to us um, and to trust that we can uh, lean into the complexities and understand the complexities but uh, be stabilised by that simple truth that we all hold, that like the reef is valuable, that we want to protect it. And, yeah, I, I, I hope that one of the things that emerges in the next uh, few years is that scientists don't become intense activists, but at least uh, platforms in a way to be able to sort of put this misinformation to bed. Right. And so jumping now to your book and what the book's going to cover or add to this story, what, what is it going to be focused on? Yeah, so Saving the Reef is really a history of uh, that I, those ideas I spoke about earlier. So where have these attitudes of conservation and exploitation of the reef come from? Have they changed through time? Um, but, you know, when I was a, uh, you know, I'm more, less of an academic now, so I don't get the opportunity to talk about it as much. But when I did talk about it in academic settings or even when I was talking to it with other people, they would say, OK, so what does this history tell us about today? So I have this long historical narrative that basically uh, begins with the settlers arrival with Cook and the establishment of Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority in 1975. So sort of following that trajectory of those two ideas of conserving the reef and exploiting the reef until then. And then I wanted to have this um, explanation of how this sort of history might inform what's going on today and ha- what can it teach us about today. So I have these interweaving uh, essays through the, through the book uh, that sort of speak to our current um, political and environmental crisis with the reef and try and link it to those historical narratives that I established in the broader uh, book. In your 2016 paper, you reference the Vertisen approach which translates to the productive discourse between different actors working together to, in this case, I suppose, save the reef. Do you think this collaborative approach is still possible or do you think the... Yeah, I think that's a really, uh, you know, important question. And I guess that is one of the things that I try to emphasise in the narrative part of Saving the Reef, that the historical narrative, that one of the reasons why the reef was, or even elements of the reef, so species and uh, places were saved throughout the sort of interaction with the place was because generally people could agree that the reef was worth saving and needed to be saved in those moments. Today, I think that what occurs is there's a... uh, probably call it a language of the reef, the way we talk about the reef. We use a certain set of languages, uh, you know, it might be its worth in terms of um, economic uh, economic value or its beauty. Uh, and we use that language to, or people use a, that language, I guess, to murky up whether or not the reef needs saving at all or how to save it. So there's a lot of disagreements there. And what's worse, I think at times, there's a tendency to position people as either destroyers of the reef reefs or savers of the reef. And so we've lost a lot of that accord that's really important in 
or that consensus that's really important in uh, locating solutions to big complex problems like saving the reef or even climate change. Uh, it's one of the, I think, one of the things that holds us back the most. And in that 67-1975 campaign, uh, the reason why it was so successful wasn't because um, a small group of people were able to convince a large group of people of the need to, uh, to save the reef, but because so many people already accepted that there was a need to save the reef. The only issue was locating consensus and accord on how to do that. Uh, today, there seems to be a lot of division about whether or not the reef needs to be saving. And I think that has a lot to do with the way we talk to each other about it. Well, thank you so much, Rowan, for coming on and giving us a different perspective, I suppose, on the reef and all the happenings that's been going on. Oh, many thanks. Really appreciate being here. And that was Idwin chatting with Professor Rowan Lloyd about his book, Saving the Reef. You're listening to Summer Programming on 3CR Community Radio. Over summer, we'll be here with Radical Radio, including documentaries, special series, highlights from 2022, and much more. For summer grid details, head to 3cr.org.au forward slash summer specials. 100 metres. 75 metres. 50 metres. 25 metres. 15 metres. 10 metres. Grass fires move faster than you think. How well do you know fire? Plan, act, survive. Go to vic.gov.au slash nofire. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit emergency response service committed to assisting wildlife in need across Victoria. Our trained and dedicated volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned animals so they can be released back to their native habitat. If you see wildlife that may need our help, please contact us on 8400 7300. To donate or register to become a volunteer, hop onto our website at wildlifevictoria.org.au. A 3CR supporter. My philosophy is very simple. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just say something, do something, get in trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. With the mouth, and if you turn the cheek, let the taste be sour. So we can reach levels above greatness. And to be quite frank, we never shameless. Concepts are built in the minds of stages, like auditoriums. We can share spaces to be important with the greatness. That's the side of soul moving evasive. That's the high we chasing. Some days I feel alright, other days I fight the good fight. Cause every now and then I stumble. Not always on that good trouble Are you okay? Are you alright? Are you okay? Yeah, you're alright Are you okay? Yeah, you're alright 
Are you okay? Yeah, yeah you alright They say it's like a start playing Just remember what I'm preaching Educating, legislate, oh, there's gonna be Good trouble Try to take away the pain New generation will be reaching Hate to play not the game, oh, there's gonna be Good trouble Trying to make the most of a sincere living Taking all my chances, just roll with them Being to the bottom, but I'm forward thinking Every day should be a need for Thanksgiving If you're caught up in the work repetition Know there's more than just your work position You're more than once a formed organism There's more than the cause and the force division Things like communism, terrorism and religion Everybody looking for their own wisdom Eschatology recorded up in the cataclysm The end ain't right now, focus on the vision Some days I feel alright Other days I fight the good fight Cause every now and then I stumble Not always on that good trouble Are you okay? Say you alright Are you okay? Yeah you alright Are you okay? Yeah you alright Are you okay? Yeah you alright They say it's like a rock flame Just remember what I'm preaching Educating, not just wait Oh, there's gonna be Good trouble Try to take away the pain New generation will be reaching Hate to play not the game Oh, there's gonna be Good trouble They say it's like a rock flame Just remember what I'm preaching Educating, not just wait Oh, there's gonna be Good trouble Try to take away the pain New generation will be reaching Hate to play not the game Oh, there's gonna be Good trouble CR is a community radio license holder. What you hear on community radio is governed by the community radio codes of practice. The codes of practice cover matters relating to program content, including local content, news, current affairs, Australian music content, programs for children, and the responsibilities associated with broadcasting by and for the community. They also cover aspects such as community access and participation in how 3CR operates. Copies of the codes are available from our website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash who we are. And you're back listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, 28th of December 2022, our last Wednesday show for the year. I hope you're enjoying our wrap-up of books and conversations with authors that we've had on Wednesday Recce this year. We're about to dip into our final segment for the morning. You might remember Ella was with us only a few months ago and she had a fantastic conversation with Nadia Wheatley, co-author of Radicals. Let's take a listen now. Yeah, now we're going to have a look at a different chapter of Australia's activist history. Uh, This interview is going to look at the 60s. Uh, So our next guest is writer Nadia Wheatley. Um, She's written some much-loved children's books, such as My Place and Five Times Dizzy, an award-winning biography, some memoirs. Um, Her latest book is Radicals, Remembering the 60s, uh, which is co-authored with her longtime friend Meredith Bergman. 
Um, and this book is part memoir, part biography, um, and it looks back at this really interesting time in Australia's history. Um, there's the backdrop of the Vietnam War, Aboriginal land rights, women's liberation, and much more. Um, so I'm excited to hear more. Good morning and welcome to 3CR Breakfast, Nadia. Good morning, Ella. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for joining us. I understand you uh, ditched your aqua aerobics class for us this morning, so we're very <laughs> flattered. <laughs> Happy to do that. Now, uh, first up, tell us why you wanted to write this book. Why the 60s um, and why write it now? Okay, well, first I'll say something about the 60s, which Meredith Bergman, my co-conspirator with this book, and I define as running from 65 to 75. So it was more of a spirit or a movement than an actual chronological decade. And it was the time, of course, when protests took off internationally in America and Europe and Britain, and also with a particular twist here in Australia. And why Meredith and I wanted to do this book is that we were part of that struggle. That was really our heyday. We were young women at university and we took part in the anti-Vietnam movement, the anti-apartheid movement, women's liberation. We had First Nations friends such as Gary Foley, who now lives in Melbourne, um, and a couple of other First Nations people in this book. So we wanted to record and honour that time and the particular type of left-wing radicalism of that time. So we talked to 18 other radicals from all across Australia, from Brisbane, Melbourne, Townsville, Tasmania, and we asked them about the moment or the experience that had radicalised them. Now, initially, Meredith and I thought it would be Vietnam because that was what radicalised us, but we found a whole range of experiences, and what was interesting was that we chose people who came from conservative backgrounds. So... We didn't want people who'd grown up in the left. We want people who wanted people who'd grown up in that dreadful 1950s Menzies era in conservative or boring political families and who had something that woke them up and transformed them into lifelong radicals. Yeah, it's interesting. It sounds like it was this time of change for the country, but also on an individual level for a lot of people. Um, I um, just got through the first chapters of the book last night. I really enjoyed it, which is um, your chapter and Meredith's chapter. Um, and you both write how you didn't um, come from this background of um, uh, political activism or you weren't raised in these radical families. Um, so I imagine, yeah, it was a really uh, defining time for you personally as well. It certainly was. And of course, the famous slogan from the 60s is the personal is political. And that really is the slogan of this book. So for all of these people, there was something like um, the actor John Derham, who came from a Melbourne Catholic um, DLP voting family. The DLP was the far to the right even of the Liberal Party on foreign policy. But the hanging of Ronald Ryan, the last person hanged in Australia, was the incident that um, absolutely radicalised him when he went up on the morning of the hanging outside the jail there in Coburg in Melbourne and um, with a group of people in a vigil and he thought they, the government, just aren't listening. So it was a whole range of personal experiences, different backgrounds that brought people into the movement. Yeah. And... Um 
Uh, you've spoken to a real range of different people. Uh, you mentioned Gary Foley. He actually uh, came up in our previous interview this morning, which is looking at a different movement from the 90s to save yeah, Indigenous Yeah, I know. He's been college. involved long-term with that school at Northlands, which is fantastic. And Gary's actually going to be um, giving the launch speech on tomorrow night, Thursday night, at Trades Hall at 6 o'clock, Victorian Trades Hall, when we launch the book. Now, the book... Um, actually came out last year, Radicals Remembering the 60s, but because of COVID, we couldn't have the the Melbourne launch, so we're celebrating it in Melbourne. And Gary, not originally from Melbourne, of course, he's a Gumbanger man from the north coast of New South Wales, but long-term Melbourne resident, resident, Dr Gary Foley, is going to be doing the honours tomorrow night. But other Melbourne people are Margaret Roadnight, the wonderful um, folk singer, uh, Peter Batchelor, the trade unionist um, and politician, and um, also um, John Derham, who I've already mentioned, and Albert Langer, who now goes by the name of Arthur Dent. So quite a good cast of Melbourne radical characters. Yeah, absolutely. And can you tell us about how you um, chose your guests for the book? How we... How you um, decided who you'd feature in this book. I understand you um, wrote it by interviewing all these people. A bit like inviting people to a party. You want to invite people who've got enough in common um, to, to have interesting conversations and, dare I say, arguments, but <laughs> where the arguments won't be so bad that you end up with a punch-up in the car park afterwards. So it was Good rule of thumb. Um, a balance of... <laughs> Men and women, we wanted a balance across Australia and a balance of political movements. Um, there was a great range from the sort of non-aligned um, new left activists, such as Meredith and myself, through to Brian Labor in Brisbane, who's a capital A anarchist, um, to Arthur Dent, Albert Langer, who was head of the Maoist at Monash University, um, a Trotskyist from Sydney, Helen Voisey, who was in a t- uh, high school students against the war in Vietnam. So we wanted a range of political backgrounds, a range of occupations, and we included the ca- counterculture. We included the arts as well as the political movement. So we have Vivian Binns, who lives now in Canberra, and she was painting and displaying um, radical feminist art, notably um, a confronting huge psychedelic image of a vagina, as early as 1967, so well before the women's movement officially kicked off in Australia and even in the United States. Yeah, I think you've certainly uh, succeeded in um, presenting a good range of guests um, in a blurb red. You've got everyone from the historian, a union organiser to a professional tennis player. I haven't got to that chapter yet, but I'm uh, looking forward to it. Well, that's the same one who's Brian Labor, the um, the capital A anarchist. So people ah. have um, very multifaceted um, lives. And were you meeting people personally and doing the interview in person? Were these yes. people you knew yes. already? Or Yeah, good question. So how we did the book was um, we chose the people and we interviewed people together, except in a couple of cases where um, geography and the fact that we had to pay for our airfares uh, meant that only one of us would do it. So I alone interviewed Brian in Brisbane. Uh, but mostly we interviewed the people together, but we wrote the chapters separately, except for the introduction and the conclusion. And so the chapters um, take the form of a conversation. I stress it's not sort of oral history on the page. It's not just like putting down the words of an interview. Um, It's more like 
an article you might read in the Good Weekend or in a Saturday paper where you meet the person through the conversation and the ambience of where they're living. And we're also very interested in their family background because, as I said, this is about radical awakenings. It's about the aha moment when people discovered radicalism and through that they discovered their own true self, their own identity. And so we needed to go back into people's family stories in order to see how they had jumped out of that background to become radicals. Yeah, it was really interesting even, as I said, I've just read the first two chapters so far, yours and um, Meredith's, um, mm-hmm. but even then it was still really interesting to um, see the range in experiences with people's families as well, I suppose. So when we hear about the 60s, we always hear about um, people upsetting their parents and um, uh, having really difficult relationships after their activism, but there was a real difference even between uh, yourself and Meredith's experience. Yeah. I understand you had a a more difficult experience, whereas Meredith's parents, uh, despite being from uh, pretty conservative backgrounds, were actually really understanding and accepting of her um, choices to get involved in activism. Indeed. Well, this was actually um, a phenomenon. Yes, we do hear about the generation gap. And in my own life, um, I had a stormy arguments with cousins and aunts and uncles um, about my politics um, but Meredith's family, particularly her mum, um, actually moved to the left parallel with her and particularly uh, Meredith's mother, whom I love dearly, um, became passionately um, supportive of the anti-apartheid movement because people could see um, racism, they could see the conscription was wrong and so there was a transformative movement going on across the generations and of course that transformation came to fulfillment in 1972 with the it's time election we baby boomers who sometimes get a bit of stick for having had everything um, easy and lucky we grew up for our entire childhood and adolescence under the menzies and then later um, other prime ministers liberal country party coalition so for Young people today who've had perhaps as many as seven, eight, nine prime ministers, imagine what it would be like if you'd had only one prime minister and that was an old whitehead patriarchal bloke um, and the repression of the 1950s that we grew up in, the boredom and social conservatism of that time was absolutely dreadful. So we were ready to get out on the streets and rebel. But the older generation too was becoming disturbed Um, if not about Vietnam, about conscription. Because remember, for every boy who faced the possibility of being forced into the army, for the first time in Australian history, we had conscription um, to send soldiers overseas. But for every boy who faced that, there was a mum and a dad. And they were worried. They didn't want their boys going off to Vietnam. So that actually caused a lot of unpopularity initially for the war, and then for the government that was delivering them that war. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, in, um, in terms of how we reflect on the time now, I think, um, as you said, we often um, give baby boomers a hard time and certainly envy your um, house prices. But I think we're all, yeah, really um, grateful for the work you did at the time. And I don't think anyone wishes to turn back the clock to um, some of the sentiment that was going around at the time. 
Um, how do you feel looking at current political movements now? We are um, running a little short on time, but just quickly, um, in terms of the way activism has changed. Meredith and I, despite COVID and whatever, um, went in the Black Lives Matter protest here in Sydney. We went, of course, in, in the big um, women's protest that happened a year or so ago. And we're both very hopeful, as indeed everyone in the book is very hopeful, about the new generation of radicals. We don't see things as finishing with us. We wanted this conversation to go out, this book to go out, so that younger radicals um, can meet their older comrades, have a bit of a chat with us via the book, and not learn from us. We're not didactic, but just see mm-hmm. how what fun it is to change the world. I mean, this is a, this is a book of hope, optimism and fun. Yeah, and that's definitely the um, perception I got when reading it last night. It's um, a lot of really heavy and interesting subject matter, but it's, um, yeah, sprinkled with all these really fun and interesting little facts about the time. Um, Now, we are going to have to head off. Um, Nadia, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Just quickly, can you give us the plug again for the event tomorrow night and your book? Yeah, yeah. So the book is Radicals Remembering the 60s by Meredith Bergman and Nadia Wheatley. If you don't find it in your local bookshop, tell them to order it in. Um, As I say, it came out last year with a publisher called New South, so their stocks might have run out, but um, the bookshop can order it in. And tomorrow night, Dr Gary Foley is going to be launching it for us um, at um, the Victorian Trades Hall at 6 o'clock. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us, Nadia. Thanks, Ella. Bye. And that was Nadia Wheatley telling us about her new book, which is co-authored with Meredith Bergman. Uh, The book is called Radicals, Remembering the 60s. It launches in Melbourne tomorrow night at Trades Hall at 6pm. Fantastic. What what an interesting book. I need to get my hands on this. I think so. I think that's uh, one for us all to read at 3CR. We're here to to bring radical stories to our listeners. And there's a, a book supporting the uh, all the different causes these people have stood up for over the years in the 60s and mm. yeah absolutely a very aptly titled book for an interview on 3CR I think mm. <laughs> absolutely Mm-hmm. 
That was Asha Putsley with Right Down Here. If you're a charity or community group looking for office space or a co-working space, Ross House has rooms of different sizes available, from 15 metres squared to 100 metres squared at affordable prices. Many charity groups already call Ross House home, so if you're interested in joining a vibrant community or working towards social justice and environmental sustainability, please visit rosshouse.org.au or contact reception during office hours on 9650-1599. Ross House is a 3CR supporter. The revolution in Rojava is a beacon of hope for the world, putting direct democracy and feminism into practice on a broad scale. This radical attempt at social transformation now faces huge challenges, including daily attacks by the Turkish military with little outside recognition or aid. Show your support for Rojava by joining North East Syria Solidarity, or NESS, and help ensure the survival of this inspiring experiment in social change. NESS sends aid, raises awareness, and builds solidarity. Get involved at www.nessolidarity.org.au. NESS is a 3CR supporter. If you or someone you care for is struggling with a mental illness or other disability and you need someone to talk to, you can call the Wellways Helpline. 
Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are feeling socially isolated, seeking information about mental health or mental health services, or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. So if you're struggling yourself or are struggling to help someone else, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR. And that's it for Wednesday Breakfast this morning. I hope you've enjoyed this summer special. Join us next week for another special program when we hear from women's sports journalist Kirby Fenwick and her audio documentary First Friday in February. Then on January the 11th, we'll be bringing you a conversation on the subject of woke capitalism. Then on the 18th, we'll be back with a series of our favourite interviews from Wednesday Breakfast. And I'd like to welcome Sunera, who'll be joining the team in 2023. So hopefully you'll... uh, get to meet her then she'll be hosting the show for the latter part of january and then uh, the rest of the team will be back until then stay well and take care you've been listening to 3cr wednesday breakfast summer programming hosted this morning by claudia Become a 3CR subscriber today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03-9419-8377. Be a part of your community radio station. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter.